If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and open to uh, Psalm 78. Next week, we will resume in Galatians, and we'll be in Galatians chapter 3. If you have any questions, uh, the number is up on the screen, and um, you can text those in. We'll, ask, we'll answer those at the end. The title is The Next Generation. <clears throat> As Christians, we are called to teach the next generation about the God who saved so they too would trust in him, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, this last week, we had a children's meeting just in, in these doors over here, and I want you to know, we had some amazing children's workers. We had people who just love to work with children and to see our children know who God is and to, and to love God more. Uh, but as we were in that meeting, we came to the awareness <clears throat> that at least uh, two things need to continue to happen. Uh, one, we want to come alongside every parent and equip them to shepherd the children. You ultimately, <clears throat> as parents, are, are the ones who disciple your children. Um, ultimately, you're the ones with them seven days a week, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Uh, we see them uh, about once, maybe twice a week at times. And so primarily, we want to come alongside you and equip you and help you. Uh, one thing we do encourage a lot is family devotions. Uh, and so I do have the New City Catechism, which is a family devotion. There's 52 questions in here that walk about who God is and the truth, truths of the gospel. If you're a parent and you want to look at this or you, you want this, you come up afterwards and, and this copy can be yours. Uh, but we want to provide resources, not only in, in things like that, but also in training. Um, and so that's one thing that we want to do more. Secondly, um, in order to be more effective, we are going to need more volunteers on Sundays when we teach our children. Uh, we're kind of experiencing growing pains, which is a good thing and it's a hard thing. Uh, but if we're going to continue to teach our children, if we're going to effectively come alongside them and help them grow in, in the gospel, then we're going to need to be able to break them up into smaller age groups, which we can only do when we have enough teachers to do so. Um, so this sermon is going to be a little bit of a, of a foretaste of something we're going to do later. Probably in August, we're going to spend um, a, a more uh, just extended time looking at Scripture and how do we equip our students? How do we come alongside them and shepherd them? And so we'll spend more time in August uh, just looking specifically at what our responsibility is as parents and as a church. Uh, but I want to encourage you to begin praying about serving in the children's ministry. Because according to the Bible, there's two ways to live. We either live in rebellion to God, or we live in devotion to God. And what we're going to see clearly today is that the natural bent of all humanity, of you, of me, of everyone, is that we live against God. This means our children are naturally born to live against God, to rebel against God, to forget against God, forget God, to reject the will of God. But if we have experienced God's grace... If we've grown, if we've experienced his grace and we've received his spirit and we've been given a new heart in Christ, then, then what that means is that now we've been, by God's grace, now able to live for, live for God, for his glory, in devotion to God. And part of what it looks like to live in devotion to God is to disciple others. In fact, if you remember, the Great Commission is to go and disciple all nations teaching them everything that God has commanded. So we're to do that with those who live on other sides of the world. We're to do that with our coworkers. We're to do that with our next-door neighbors. And we're to do that with our children. We're to teach them 
the truths of the scripture. And so if you are a parent today, then this is directly spoken to you. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not a parent here, or my kids have grown up, or I don't have kids. Do I just sit here? What do I do during this next 40 minutes as we look at this text? What we see in God's word is that it's not only the parents who disciple, but all of the church disciples the church. And so uh, we need people other than just the parents discipling the kids. My kids need other voices. They need your voice in teaching them about the truths of the gospel. And also as we learn, as we go through the text, we're just going to be reminded of the gospel of the need of the gospel, of God's grace, and of the necessity of not only teaching our children, but also teaching one another, and also making sure we're reaching out to our friends and unbelievers and those who live around us. And so we're going to be in Psalm 78 today. If you've looked, it's only 72 verses. Um, I'm not going to have you stand for 72 verses. That would be a long time. We debated about that greatly. But we do stand at the reading of God's word, so I will ask you to stand, and we're going to read the first eight verses together, and then we will make our way through um, the text after that. Here at Timberline, we do stand at the reading of God's word, and we do so simply just to, to honor God, to say that we know his word comes to us with his full authority inspired by the Spirit. And so we have Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the, to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to the next generation, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for Psalm 78. I thank you for the truths that we're going to be reminded of, that we're going to learn of today. God, may we be reminded of your grace, of your great patience, of your power, of your provision for us. God, may we be reminded, God, how you've provided all that we need for salvation. May we be reminded the responsibility of teaching the next generation of coming alongside them, that they would know you and place their hope in you. God, may we be encouraged by the text as we come through. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this, that you would um, work in the hearts of just us who are here, that not only would we grow in love for you and affection for you and devotion to you, but that 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 would be seen also in our discipling of others, especially the little children that we have. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. We come to the first uh, part where it's the call to the next generation. In verses 1 through 8, we're kind of given what the psalm is going to be about. And then in verses 9 through 72, he's going to flesh out a history lesson for us. But the first part is the call to teach the next generation. And we have a command. And the command we see in verse 1 is to give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your heart, your ears to the words of my mouth. 
So it's not very difficult to figure out what he's saying. He's saying, listen up. I'm going to tell you something, and I need you to hear everything that I'm about to say. And he has a purpose in this. And the purpose is he's going to teach what their fathers have taught them. And what is that? We see in verse 4 that we are to teach the next generation about the glorious deeds of God. That's what we're called to do. Verse 6, we see that the hope is that the children will teach their children who are yet unborn, who will arise and teach their children. So we're giving a vision of a people who are continually teaching the next generation about God. And in verse 7, we have kind of the the main purpose, the main uh, point is that they would put their hope in God, meaning that they would trust in God, meaning that they would love God. So the purpose is, we're going to teach our children that they would put their hope in God, believe in Him, that they will teach their children, who will then put their hope in God, that they will teach their children. Do you see how it goes? Do you see how the generations are being taught? The next generation, the next generation, the next generation. So when we sow seeds into this next generation, to our children today, we're actually sowing seeds in the generations to come as we teach them the truths of the gospel. But we're also given that there is a danger, and we see that in verses 7 and 8. And what we see is that the fathers, and it's it's meaning like the forefathers, people who have lived before us, they have forgotten God, and they disobeyed God. What we're going to see in this psalm is that there is a natural tendency for man to forget and reject God. If you remember back in the book of Judges, Judges comes after Joshua. Joshua is a book where the people of Israel all come into the promised land. It's amazing. They destroy all the enemies, and they're now beginning to, to live and dwell in the land that God has promised them. And then we come to Judges, and this is what we read in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, And all that generation also who were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work what he had done for Israel. Just think about that. One generation, Israel has forgotten about God. One generation. That's all it takes. If we fail to teach the next generation the truths and wonders of God, they will forget and reject God also. We're always one generation away from losing Christianity. We're always one generation. I mean, many of us were very good at, at coming alongside teaching our kids, uh, maybe it's sports, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's yard work. My kids are great yard workers. Well, maybe they're not great yard workers, but we're persevering in yard work. But do we teach them the one thing that gives life? Think about it. We can invest in so many other areas of our child's development, but do we teach in the one area that gives life? Do we teach the Word of God? As parents, our primary responsibility is not to make sure our kids get straight A's, is not to make sure they, they know how to do all the yard work, although that's very important, or throw a football, although that's very important apparently in my house, but it's that they would know the word of God, that we would shepherd our children, and the primary way we do that is by teaching the word of God. The primary way is bringing them to the scriptures that they would understand who God is what he has done, and how we're to live for him. And so in verses 9 through 72, what the author is going to do, he's going to give a history lesson on how easy it has been for the generation that was before them, for their fathers, to have forgotten the entire word of God. 
And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see two primary things. First, we're going to look at the sinfulness of man. And then second, we will learn about the God who saves. And before we do that, there's, I just want to remind you, he's going to look at the history of Israel here. We, when we look at the history of Israel, we're reading the Old Testament. We're reading about instructions on how you and I are, are to live. Do you know that? Like the Old Testament is written for you and me so we would know how to live. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. Romans 15, 4 says this, and I think this is up here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for us. Do you know that? Just soak in that for a moment. So 39 books of the Old Testament, why were they written? Yes, the... um, the people during that time used them, but Scripture tells us one of the primary purposes is they're written for you and for me today that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we believe in God. That's why we have the Old Testament. In fact, you can go to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, and you read very similar wording there. The Old Testament was the only Bible Paul had, the only Bible Jesus had, the only Bible that the New Testament writers had. It was through the New Testament, or the Old Testament, that now we have the New Testament. So I encourage you, do not neglect the readings of the Old Testament. Do not think, well, the New Testament is just a little easier. In some ways it is, but in the Old Testament, we see just the character of God. We see the movement of God from the beginning of time all the way up to redemption. We see the sinfulness and the depravity of man, and that's what we're going to look at. So we'll begin by looking at the sinfulness of man in our text. And in verse 9, we see that the Ephraimites, they turned back on the day of battle. If you look down, verse 9, the Ephraimites, they're armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. Verses 10 and 11, we see that they're disobedient to God, and they forgot about all the wonders that God has done. Now, the Ephraimites, if you're not familiar, they're the tribe of Ephraim. Now, it was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. At times, authors in the Old Testament will refer to Ephraim, or use the word Ephraim to refer to either all of Israel, Either just the ten tribes of Israel or to just the tribe Ephraim. So it could be any of those. Here, he's most likely either referring to just Ephraim, the tribe, or he's referring to all of Israel. Or there could be an argument he's referring to the ten tribes. So it's a little unclear, but it doesn't really matter because what the point is, is they forget about God and they disobey God. God. That's a clear thing that we see here. In fact, throughout the chapter, we're going to see Ephraim's disobedience and forgetfulness to God. And so like up on the screen, there's verse 17, and and we'll read through these. It says, yet they still sinned more against the Most High in the desert. Verse 22, they did not believe in God and do not trust in his saving power. Verse 31, they still sinned despite his wonders they did not believe. Verses 41 and 42, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. That's referring to Egypt. He was the enemy. He was the one, the Egyptians were the one who held them bondage. And he says they forgot about that. Verses 56 and 57, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. And so there, in summary, you have verses 9 through 72. 
Ephraim forgets God, rejects God, um, continually turns away from God. Now, what are they forgetting? You know, like, what would they be forgetting? I mean, was God just doing menial tasks? I mean, menial as maybe just ordinary tasks, like making the sun go up and down. I know that's huge, and I know it's amazing. It only happens by the power. But we can take that for granted, right? Because earth just kind of keeps spinning, going around the sun, comes up, down. Like, we don't think much about that. So, so what is God doing? Is he just keeping the world going around like normal? Are they just taking that for granted and just forgetting that there's a God? Well, throughout the psalm, what we see is that there's incredible acts of God that are being mentioned. In the verses 43 to 55, the author recounts the exodus. He mentions the ten plagues. He mentions the parting of the Red Sea. He mentions the time when God shakes Mount Sinai because his presence comes down upon it. And then Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Remember that? Like the entire mountain is shaking. Would you forget that? Remember that time... The mountain was shaking. No, I, I totally forgot about that. Remember lightning, thunder, we all fell over? No, I totally forgot about that. So, I mean, that, that's what's happening here. The, then he brings them into the promised land, defeats enemies like Jericho. Now, now, remember that one? Do you remember how they defeated Jericho? It's because they shot spears and destroyed it, right? No, they, they marched around with the most powerful people leading. Actually, no, they had the band band. The band members in charge. The band was leading the army, you know, the most powerful people. We had the trumpets up there, the drums. And all the hope of Israel was in the drum players and the trumpets. And they march around. They don't say anything. Eventually they shout and they blow their trumpets and the walls just come crumbling down. You forget about that? I mean, is that easy to forget about? But what we have here, God says that these people, the author is telling us, they forgot about all of these acts. How do you forget something about that? Like, how do you forget that? Remember that time the walls fell down? No. Remind me. Tell me about this. I mean, how do you forget about the God who rains down hell on the Egyptians so that every animal, every plant, and every person who did not come inside was killed? How do you forget about the God who killed every single firstborn in Egypt but every firstborn of Israel who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was spared. How do you forget that? How do you forget about the God who makes it so dark in Egypt that you can't see your hand, but as soon as you walk over to Goshen, where Israel lives, like, it's daylight. So imagine here, this is lazy, we have great sun, and, like, this is, this is what it was like for Israel. We go into Olympia. I'm not characterizing Olympia by Egypt, but, you know, we'll just let your mind wander. But you go over to Olympia, and it's just dark, and all of a sudden you crash your car into something because you can't even see the windshield. It's a black. It's like, how do you forget that? How do you forget the God who destroyed Jericho with trumpet blasts, with band members? I mean, that's the, that's the only time the band members lead the army. Was it because they didn't have Facebook? Now think about this. Maybe. Today I get on Facebook, and what does Facebook do now in the morning when you open it up? Facebook, social media, just so you don't, if you don't know that. It's a little social media internet thing. It's probably a terrible, sinful thing that we all waste too much time on. Um, but now when you get on it, it will tell you, you know, this happened a year ago. And it shows you a little picture. This happened two years ago. Today, this happened nine years ago. It shows my wife holding my oldest son. And did you see that? Was that on yours? Yeah, it was on mine. I don't forget it. My wife forgot. She doesn't have Facebook. Um, is that why? Like, if Israel just had Facebook, oh, get to Jericho nine years ago, Remember? 
No, it's what we're told. It's because they're sinful. They reject God, and they, they turn from him. They think it's foolish to believe in the one true God. Verse 58, we see that they, they keep making these idols. They keep making idols. In the Old Testament, we see Israel continually worships idols. They would rather make something, they would rather worship something they make with their hands than the God who made everything with his hands. And somehow, they think that's wise. It's because of sin. You and I are born sinful. We're born naturally rebelling, forgetting about God. Our children naturally are bent towards forgetting God. Second, it's because our parents didn't teach them about God. That's the purpose of this whole psalm. We don't want to be like this generation. What happened? Well, they didn't. They fell away from God. Why did they fall away? Well, they weren't taught. That's why he's making the point. We're teaching our generation that they'll teach the next generation, that they'll teach the next generation, that they will put their hope <clears throat> in God. So what the parents did <clears throat> is the parents taught the kids how to farm, because that's important, how to build houses, because that's important. But they did not do what was most important. They did not teach them the truths of the Scripture. And if you think about it, when kids are young, they're so moldable. I mean, their, their hearts are, are sinful. And they, they are sinful, but they're not stubborn because of the decades of living in a sinful world. You know what I'm talking about? You know, as we get older, we get a little more hardened, we get more stubborn. I mean, if, if you talk to your children, they easily believe in the God who spoke creation into place, who parted the Red Sea. They have no, they have no problem believing in this. In fact, you can, in our family, we tell lots of stories, very far-fetched stories, um, they have no problem thinking that their dad, you know, like wrestled lions in Africa. They're like, really? Was that real, dad? Of course. Of course it was real. I did it with my bare hands. My wife was there. She saw it. She backs me up on it, of course. The kids are going, wow, my dad's so cool. Now, I don't mean just to say that kids are gullible and so let's teach them scripture to, like, that's not the point, but they believe things. They're moldable. Their hearts are not stubborn yet. And I don't mean to say they're innocent, but they're still very sinful, but yet they're willing to learn. They're willing to believe. And it's easy in one sense to teach them the truths of God and for them to begin understanding sin, for them to begin understanding there's a God who sees everything that we can pray to at all times. This is why it's so important for parents. We regularly teach our children at home be doing devotions with them, to, to tell them uh, about God and how he provides for us and, and what he does for us, to pray with our children. This is why it's so important here at church. We want to teach our children. We want to come alongside what you are doing as parents. And so one thing that I really want us to move towards is really, uh, we talked about creating assessments, metrics in a sense, in, in our children's department. On If they're in preschool what will they have learned in a year in preschool if they're in our if they're in our junior church up to third grade what can we say they would have learned in third grade if they're in our children's department where they get out of, i believe fourth grade what will they have learned in these years what can we know that they will know or, or hope that they will know uh, if they're in the junior high and high school with andrew what are they going to be going over we want to make sure that we're teaching our children coming alongside you as parents and Teaching the children the truths of the gospel. So a while ago, my wife got me um, a wind catcher from Costco. It's, it sounds lame, but I love this wind catcher. You know, it's the thing that spins. So I even took a picture of it so you can see, because I don't want there to be any confusion here. There it is. Um, that's my wind catcher. 
Um, I see it every day as I, as I look out <clears throat> my kitchen window, or yeah, the dining room window, every time I'm outside. I get mesmerized by this thing. It like brings me so much joy. It just spins. Like I love this thing. I can just watch it. In fact, I'm outside working on my sermon, and I saw the wind catcher, which is probably why it's in this sermon. And it was blowing, um, but what I've noticed, it always blows in the way the, scent, the, the wind blows. It always blows. Where the wind blows, you know, just blows in the way the wind blows. Um, I never see it going against the wind. I don't ever see, like, the wind blowing this way. It's going to persevere and fight the wind, and it's saying, no, I'm not going to turn, and, and trying to twist the opposite way, and it's kind of like wrenching itself over. I, I don't see that. It simply blows in whatever direction the wind's going to blow it. And my point is, we often act as though if we do not instruct our children that they're neutral or that they might just gravitate towards God or that they might just naturally resist sin on their own. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. That's not what's going to happen. They will blow just like wherever, whatever direction the wind is blowing them. You see, sin is like the wind and it blows them wherever it wishes. And the only way to go against the wind is to believe and trust in Jesus. That's the only way. Because we're not called to stand in one place. In fact, there is no standing in one place. There is never a neutral ground in the Bible. You know that, right? Like, there's not like a safe zone. Like, well, I'm not really sinning right now, but I might not be moving towards God either. You're either moving towards God or you're moving away from God. There is no other ground that's in the Bible. There's nothing else. So if you're not moving towards God, know that you're moving away from God. Those are the only options that are given in God's word. And it's only by God's grace that we're able to overcome sin. And we're able to live in a resistance to sin and devotion to God. By God's grace, now we spin against the wind. We turn towards God. So parents, teachers, like we have this awesome privilege of coming alongside our children and teaching them about the grace of God, teaching them about the God who sent his son, that they would believe in him and stand firm against sin, move against sin and move towards God. We have that privilege, we have that responsibility that we can instruct our children. So that's what I want us to look at is, what do we learn about now the God who saves? What do we teach our children? Well, so in Psalm 78, we learn a lot about the God who saves. Number one, we read about his provision. God provides for Israel throughout this entire psalm. I encourage you, just read through the psalm. Just be amazed at how much he provides. Ephraim tests God, and rather than destroying them, God provides for their needs. If you look at verse 15, we see he brings forth water from rocks. They continue to test him. In verse 24, he rains down bread from them while they're in the wilderness. In verse 25, we're told the bread is like the bread of angels. So here we have, we have a people who they keep testing God, they keep rejecting God, and God gives them moldy bread. It's not what it says, does it? He gives them the bread of angels. It's not pretty good bread. He's not weighing, well, how good are your deeds today, and that's how good the bread will be? But he gives them the bread of angels that comes down from heaven. Verse 27, he rains down meat upon them like dust. Now think about that. They're in a desert. Do you got it? Like, how much dust is in a desert? How much meat did he rain down on? Just a little bit? Like, like he lavished it upon him. I think it says in, in Numbers, it's like three feet deep. Like, just quail everywhere. That'd be awesome. Could you imagine, like, hunting then? <laughs> Every hunter's like, oh, that'd be cool. 
Our God doesn't just give us leftovers. He doesn't just minimally provide for us. He provides in maximum abundance. We want to teach our kids, this is who our God is. He provides for us. And, and most clearly, how do we see God provides for us? At the cross. God holds nothing back so that we can be saved. But he sends forth his son, his one and only son, so that what? We can be saved and become sons. We need to teach our children the extravagant provision of God. Let us teach our children his immense love and, and how God gives us everything he's possessed before eternity. Do you realize that? He gives us his son and he gives us his spirit. The two things he possesses before eternity, he gives those to us that we could have life with him. In fact, uh, my kids, man, I love my kids. Like the last couple of weeks, they're like, Dad, we need a spinner. We need spin. You know what I'm talking about, spinners? Brought one. A fidget spinner, you know? Don't tell my kids I brought one. They're like, Dad, can we bring ours? No. Can't bring them into service, and I'll like play with mine. So, like, this is a fidget spinner. So, be in awe, my kids are. Uh, and, like, Dad, we need this fidget spinner. Dad, Dad, we need, we need this fidget spinner. Like, life and death is hanging on my kids having this. Like, pretty much. Like, if they don't get it, they're going to die. At least that's how they communicated it, night and day. Um, and so what do I do? I get on Amazon, I order it for them, and then one day they show up, and there's fidget spinners. And do I just give them to them? Like, yeah. We'll make them work for it. No. That totally would remove this illustration. Uh, but what I do is I, I tell them, like, I love you guys, and I think these fidget spinners are silly. That's what I tell them. I think they're silly, but you love them, and I want you to have them. And I say, like, uh, I, I tell them that as a, as a father, I want to give good gifts to you. And I say, do I always give, give, good, give, give good gifts to you? And they're like, yes, Dad, you always do. I mean, I gave them a spinner, right? They're going to say anything at this moment. But I say, no, really, do I always give you good gifts? And they're like, well, yeah. I said, but do I give you perfect gifts? Do I give you what you need every time exactly what you want? And they're like, well, probably not. I mean, you're not perfect, Dad. I said, but is there one who does? And they're like, yeah, God does. And I said, yeah. And in the Bible, we learn that if we who are sinful love to give good gifts, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us good gifts? And so in the process of giving kids spinners, what I think are silly, but we want to take every opportunity as a parent. How do we teach the provision of God? Here I'm giving something silly because they just want it. It's just, just going to help them and, and they're going to play and it's just going to be a fun thing for them. But our God loves to give us things that's going to maximize our joy. So not only spinners, but he gives us his son, Jesus Christ, that we could have life. Let's teach about the provision of God. We also learn about the power of God. The author several times refers to how God brings Israel out of Egypt. Verse 12 and 13, he specifically mentions the Exodus and the Red Sea. If you look, he says, In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the water stand like a heap. So he's clearly referring to the Exodus, the Red Sea. Verses 43 through 55, he expounds on that so much more, going through in more detail of the Exodus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see displays after display after display of God's power. The Old Testament reveals the power of God. We see power like when he floods the earth. He says, let it rain, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights so that it floods the earth. We see power that he controls the weather. When it rains, when it doesn't rain. 
Power like when he raises the dead. Power like when Daniel is thrown in the lion's den, and yet the lion's mouths are all closed and they don't touch him. And yet then when the evil people are thrown in, do you remember what it says? Every bone in their body is broken before they even hit the ground. We see a God who's in control of everything. Proverbs tells us God is in control of every roll of the die. So the way the die spins and falls, God's in control. He says that the mind of a king is like waters in the hands of God. He turns it wherever he wants. The Old Testament, the entire Bible teaches us there's nothing outside the control of God. He is more powerful than anything else. We see that in this psalm. Most clearly, we see the power of God and that Jesus Christ comes to die on the cross, defeating sin, death, and Satan, rising three days later from the grave. Now, this is where we need good teaching, okay? This is where we need good teaching because Jesus comes defeating sin, death, and Satan. And, and my wife was reminding, and I think I said it a while ago in here, like there's all these little things on the internet now saying, like, you too can defeat your Goliath. Is it the point of David and Goliath, your friend's being bullied, your, 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 friend, your son's being bullied at school? Well, don't worry, son, there's a text about this. Let me tell you about David and Goliath, and we see a little kid, he's being bullied, and what you need to do is get a slingshot, and you're going to walk up, and you're going to say, because I believe in God, and, and you know, you're going to strike him down, and he'll fall down. Is that the point of David and Goliath? Is the fact that we can overcome our little enemies here on earth, is that the point of David and Goliath. You know, the point, and this is what we need our teachers to teach, this is what we need parents to teach, is that what we have is a representative of God's people. And this representative is standing against the most giant, formidable force they have ever seen that the entire people of God have no chance against, and one small shepherd comes against. And he defeats them. And because of that, the people of God have victory, right? And yet there's another David who comes and destroys a much greater enemy, sin, death, and Satan. And he destroys an enemy far greater than any of us can. And he represents all of us so that if we believe in him, his victory becomes our victory so that we celebrate and rejoice with the son, with the shepherd who defeats our enemy, so that we too would become sons of God. Do you see the point of David and Goliath? It is not that you too can be a David and defeat your Goliath, so don't worry, little son, you can go now and defeat the bully at school. Or if you're having a hard day at work, don't worry, you can have a better day. Your work is not Goliath. The bully at school is not Goliath. The point is Jesus comes as our representative. That if we believe in him, his victory is our victory. And that we all rejoice with him for all of eternity. That's what we need. We need teaching like that. We need parents for you to grow in the wisdom of God. That you know how to wield the scripture for the children. Because trust me, there's an immense amount of false messages out there. And what we want is good teaching in our junior church, in our preschool. Just teaching children the truths of God. So it's not about how to be a better person. But it's about who we are in Jesus. And how do we live as a son and a child of God? 1 Corinthians 1.24 says that Jesus is the power of God. Do you know that? You want to know about the power of God? You look at Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You want to see the power of God? We look at the cross. 
Humanity, naturally because of sin, thinks Jesus and the cross is foolish. I mean, you're going to worship a dead guy? A guy who got killed on a cross? I mean, that just sounds stupid, doesn't it? It sounded stupid 2,000 years ago, and there's many people today. You're going to worship someone who was crucified? So we must show our children that the death is not foolish. We must teach our children the logic of the cross. We teach our children the depths of our sinfulness and that we have no hope of earning God's grace. There's no way we move into God's goodness. There's no way we're going to be in God's heaven because we're sinful. We teach them that apart from believing in Jesus, we all stand condemned before God and we will suffer in eternity in the fiery place of hell. And do not soften hell for your children. They can take it. In fact, I would say our children could take so much more than what we think they can. Do not dumb down the scriptures for them. Teach the scriptures. Let them understand the weight of the scriptures. Let's teach them the power of the cross. And it's only at the cross there is sinfulness, there is forgiveness of sin. And tell them the world will say this is foolish. And teach them how the worldly wisdom goes against the wisdom of God. We also see the patience of God. Throughout the psalm, we see God's incredible patience. Ephraim is like a whore, continuing whoring after false idols. Again, in 58, we see they're making these idols, provoking God to anger. Ephraim is faithless, but God is faithful. God patiently provides for Ephraim. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God sending prophet after prophet after prophet to his people that they would repent. And what do they do? They don't. Many people, they say, if, if God is real, then why doesn't he just intervene and stop all sin? If he's a really a loving God, why doesn't he just come right now put an end to sin? Well, there's, there's a good reason for that, and your children are thankful for this. And it's because he's patient, because he doesn't want more to suffer. So God is patient right now, allowing sin to still be in existence, allowing it to occur, so that the gospel will continue to spread to our children, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and across other parts of the world where they do not even have the gospel yet, that they would hear the gospel and that they would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they would be saved. This is what Romans 2, 4 says. God, in his kindness, waits to pour out his wrath so that more and more will repent and believe. So when those people say, if God is loving, no, let me tell you what our loving God does right now. He patiently endures with us so that the gospel will continue. And he even uses sin as a means of highlighting the power and the grace of the gospel. The world is going to misrepresent God every opportunity it has. So our job as Christians is to help our children have a correct understanding of who God is. Our job as Christians is to help our neighbor have a correct understanding of God is. When he says, why is your God like this? What he's doing, he's taking something he heard or read or a bad experience and he's letting that define God rather than letting scripture define God. So what we want to do is know the scripture that we can properly define who God is so that they can know who he is. They can see his character and his patience. But we don't stop here. We also show God's punishment that he punishes verse 31 we see that after god provides them this abundant quail we see that they're so incredibly greedy and ungrateful god kills some of them 
He's like, you don't even realize I just gave this to you. And he strikes some of them down. Verse 34, we read in response to their unbelief, he, would have, he killed some of them, and it led to them repenting and remembering God. So we see that God will go to extreme measures. He will go to killing people so that people will be aware of God and, his, and the grace that he gives but then, even in verse 35, what we see is that Ephraim does not truly repent. It says they remember and they repent, but then we see their repentance was in word only and not in the heart. This is like, you ever catch your children doing something wrong? And they're like, oh, and they're, they're sorry, tears begin streaming down. Now, is it because they offended you? Is it because they're like, oh, I just dis- I sinned against mom. I sinned against God of creator, mighty of the, of the mighty of the universe. Is that why they're so heartbroken? Or is it because they got caught? And they're like, punishment is coming. If I act really sorry, I just might not be so bad. Now, surely your kids don't do that. Mine, of course, would never do that. They're pastor's kids. That's not true. (laughs) Um, We find that our kids will often apologize in order to avoid something worse happening, right? I mean, they, they plead anything at that moment. Oh, I'm so sorry. Beginning in verse 56, then what we see, Ephraim continues to act in rebellion to God. So in verse 61, God sends him away to captivity. In verse 62, we read this. God gave his people over to the sword, and he vented his wrath on his heritage. Verse 67, we see Ephraim is rejected. Now, part of us, if, if you've read the psalm, you might be thinking, well, it's about time. Like these people just send and they send and they rejected God and they forgot about God. I mean, they're just a whore the entire time. Man, it's about time God finally does something to them. But guess what? You and I, we're no different from Ephraim, are we? If we really look at the scriptures and what they tell us, well, we're sinful. We continually reject God. We continually forget about God. We continually forget about His grace, even grace at the cross. So often as we go through the day, we're anxious because we think that we're in control of everything, when yet we need to remember the God who controls all things and provides everything that we need. We are sinful. If Ephraim was rejected, then surely we have no hope either. But then comes verse 68. And look at verse 68. We have God chooses the tribe of Judah. It says, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. So what he does, he takes his sanctuary from Shiloh, which was in Ephraim, and he moves it now to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, and Judah. And we see that God chooses David, a shepherd, a lowly, lowly shepherd to become king. In verse 72, with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So what we see, God in his grace has provided a righteous king to save his people and to lead his people. God's provided a man who loves God with all his heart. And the psalm ends with David ruling on the throne with an upright heart. Now, are we to think that Judah was just exemplary this whole time? Based upon what we've read about Ephraim, are we to think, wow, man, Judah just must have been amazing. Wow, it's a good thing they had David. It's a good thing there was this perfect tribe in all of Israel. 
I don't think that's what we're to think. But we're to be enamored at God's grace, His extravagant grace. And how He preserves always a people to continue to proclaim His word. And out of this people, He brings David, which He rules, but He's not a perfect king, is He? He's good, best king we have in the Old Testament. But He's also, He struggles with lust, He's a murderer, He's an adulterer. But David does something for us. He leads us to a greater king. He leads us to a king who does lead his people perfectly, who is perfectly righteous, because we all are like Ephraim. We need a David. We need the perfect David to come lead us, because as the king goes, so goes the people. When you read in the Old Testament, we had a wicked king, so what do the people do? They live wickedly. When there's a good king, what do they do? They They live in righteousness. The problem is we don't have a perfect king, and all these good kings keep dying. But now, the perfect David has come in Jesus Christ. That he would rule his people. That he would lead us in righteousness. And he has no flaws. So that he will lead us perfectly after him. Sin is such an offense to God. That God sends his son to die on the cross. That we would see how much he hates sin. And how much he also loves us. We see both. We see God's extreme hatred of sin and God's great love of those he created in his image. And the only thing that can, that can remove his wrath is the Son. There's nothing else. There's no other way. That's what we need to teach our children. There is punishment. And if you choose to reject God, if you choose to rebel against God, then there is punishment, eternal punishment. But for all those who believe there's eternal life, And the point is that we get to live with God forever. So we need to teach people. We need to teach our children about God's patience, his power, his provision, about his punishment, that he's holy. We need to teach them about the God who saves. So parents, teachers, we teach our children there's two ways to live. We either live in rebellion to God or we live in devotion to God. There's consequences for either decision. These are consequences that we'd be given the Spirit of God, that we'd have eternal life and joy with Him forever. Or there's eternal damnation where we suffer in the fire that licks at our skin for all of eternity, never to be sufficed. Those are the two options that we have. Now, I do want to remind us, we do not save our children. So in all of this, we don't save our children, and I don't want to, you to think that I am, or that Scripture is putting the pressure on you to save your children. We know, Scripture tells us, we don't save anyone. God is the one by His grace who saves. But we do learn in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. So there is a connection between Scripture and faith. Those who hear Scripture and believe in Scripture are saved. And so the way that we will teach our children and lead them towards righteousness, towards shepherding them towards God, that God would awaken their hearts and they would see Him with great joy is by teaching them the Scriptures of God. That's our goal. That's our responsibility. That's our responsibility as parents, as every single person in here, and it's our responsibility as we also teach children in junior church. You are not responsible for saving your children. Do not ever place that burden on you. It's not what scripture does, that's not what we do, but we do see 
parents especially, you are the instruments that God uses to teach the Scripture to the next generation that their eyes would be open and they'd place their hope in Him. And that's not to be like this weight upon you, like, oh, I can't handle this, but it's to be this privilege, this joy that you've been given the Holy Spirit who now dwells within you. And He cries out, Abba, Father, so that you can understand the Scriptures, so that you can know them. And that you can teach your children. And you can teach others' children. And you can teach the children in junior church. And you can teach your neighbor. And you can teach your coworker, And you can teach the person on their side of the world about the love of God. And we can take confidence that when we teach Scripture, God does save. We take great confidence that the people who are downstairs, I think Peggy and Robert are teaching at this moment, there's great work going down there. Eyes are being opened right now. Hard hearts are being opened up that they would be made soft for the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? That's happening right now. Parents, when you're with your children and you're walking your children through the scriptures, at those moments, what you're doing is you're peeling open their hearts that they would begin to see the scriptures and they would embrace them and love them also. So take confidence. As they hear the scripture, God does save. When you teach your children, when we teach children, we're sowing seeds in future generations. In the generation to come, the generation to come, and the generation to come. We don't always see the fruit right away, do we? Like there's times we teach our children, and it seems like they walk away for a while, but then many times we see them come back. And we see the seeds that we sowed in them early begin to take fruit. And then eventually they have a family and they begin to teach those seeds to their family. So don't judge your effectiveness on fruit necessarily. Sometimes the fruit comes later. We can pray it comes right away. Pray it does. Pray, pray a lot that the kids' eyes are open soon. But let us be faithful and teach. And if you're a teacher, never underestimate your role. You see the kids in a very limited time. You see them for one, two hours a week. Don't judge your effectiveness or God's faithfulness by what you see every week. Because there's times you might not see a lot. But after two years, after three years, after five years, what we begin to see is the character of God developed in these children. And they begin to know right and wrong. And they begin to know the God who saves. And they begin to understand the gospel. And they begin to want to pray for their friends at school. That's one thing that I love that Ben has done at an early age. He says almost every prayer... Um, God, he prays for his friends at school. That's not my wife and I coercing him. You need to do this, but they, he sees the needs. Like Jesus saves. If they don't believe in Jesus, they're not going to be saved. And so he prays for his, his friends. And does he perfectly witness to them? I, I don't know about that. But he's growing in it. Now I realize that there's some of you thinking, teaching is this massive responsibility. I don't want to screw that up. It's best if I just stay back. It might be a temptation that you have. Uh, but I want to remind you, for one, as a church, we want to train you. We want to come alongside you. We want to help you. We want to provide resources for you. But I want to remind you, there's a great resource you already have if you're a believer. You have the Spirit of God. And every day as you read Scripture, the Spirit of God is in you, awakening your eyes to Scripture. So, I mean, we, we can give books, we can train, we can teach on things to do, things not to do. But you have God inside of you. 
Do not underestimate the power of God who has awakened your eyes and who will also use you to awaken the eyes of other children as well. Know that the Spirit is in you, strengthening you, providing you all the wisdom that you need. So I want to encourage you, if you're here, um, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you have children, if you don't have children, I want you praying. That's all of you, just so you know. You got that right. Um, Be praying about serving in the children's ministry. Now, you don't have to serve in the children's ministry. But what we're ultimately saying is you are called to disciple. That's not an option. That's not an option. If you're not discipling, well, that's part of an identity as a disciple. A disciple disciples. A disciple follows Jesus and tells others about Jesus. That's what our mission is. We make disciples, we make disciples, we make disciples. It's very much in this text. In fact, this might be a good text to have on our, on our mission statement. But we're called to disciple. And one of the people we are called to disciple is children. This is not like an option, but it's something that we're all to be engaged in. Now, exactly how are we to be engaged in it? It might be junior church. It might not be. But I strongly want to begin encouraging you. How are you discipling the children in your family and in this church? Don't think about your qualifications. Don't think about all those things. Remember, there's the Spirit who's in you. He can equip you, and He can work great things in you. I want to encourage you, if, if you would like more information, if you just want to know more what it would look like to serve down, you can talk to me, you can talk to Andrew, you can talk to Bill, you can talk to Robert and Peggy, they're downstairs right now, Stephanie Kaiser's up here. Um, we have lots of resources that you can talk to. Come see me if you want the New City Catechism. It's a great book on just walking your family through the, the, the scriptures. But let us, let us be faithful to God. And that he has saved us, that we would disciple. We're called to disciple the next generation, that they too would hope in God. So let's begin praying for them and discipling them on a regular basis. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you how you have saved us by your grace. God, how amazing it is that you have saved us by grace. God, May we not take that for granted. May we not forget the power of your cross. May we not forget it in the sense that we don't tell it to others. May we not forget it in the sense that we keep it somehow compartmentalized in our our very being. But Lord, may, may it flow out of every part of us. That we communicate the gospel to our children, to our spouses, to our friends, to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. And may it move us so that we would pack our bags and go to other places and other parts of the world where they do not yet have your scriptures, that they would hear about your grace and believe in you. God, you love children. You tell us to come to you like children. Now move us that we would disciple the children here. Help us to be a church. We disciple people of all ages, coming alongside, equipping them that they would know you, that they would love you, that they would fear you and walk according to your word. And may we do that with our children also. In your name, Jesus, amen. Stay standing. It's not going to take too long. Um, Number one, what do I do if I didn't teach my kids about God and now they've moved out? It's a really good question. Um, I think that question is like, is it too late now? What do I do? Um, I'd say pray. Pray for your kids still. Never stop praying. Um, I would say apologize to them. 
I would apologize. I, said, I, I, didn't, I didn't shepherd you. I didn't, I didn't do this. Let them know there was something that you didn't do that you see Scripture calls. And then let them see how important it is in your faith. Talk to them about God. Begin modeling that to them now. Teaching might look very different if your kids are out of the house and they're 20 or 30 or 40 years old now. Um, take every opportunity, though, you can to show them the love of God and, and to teach them about the Scriptures. Um, but I would say pray, apologize, and begin just living it out before them, teaching them as much as you can. Uh, number two, I have young kids. How do I start teaching my kids? Pray. I would say pray again. Lots of prayers involved here. Uh, grow yourself. Like, the most important thing is, are you growing in the word of God? Like, we must be growing. If it's the most important thing our children need, it's also the most important thing we need. I can't shepherd them what I don't know. I can't lead them where I haven't gone. So I, I, need, to, I need to be growing. Uh, have Bible times with your kids. This might look very different. Might be once a week. Might be every night. Um, do things like, like the catechism thing here, which the catechism is just questions about God and his character. Um, but go through something. Change it up. We got tons of books at our house, and we change them up all the time. Um, I don't want my kids to be bored with it. Talk about God as much as you can. Remember like things like the spinners? So silly. But take opportunities. Look, I give you this because I love you. God gives you much better gifts than spinners. <laughs> But let them see that. Just remind them in various ways. Let it be normal the way you talk about God. Don't let it be this Sunday thing only, but let it be in just the very way you talk. Yes, uh, this last week, um, Ben and I went camping with Andrew, and I lost uh, my little remote for my shot collar for my dog, and uh, totally lost it. So we prayed, Ben, man, what are we going to do? So we prayed to God, and we didn't find it. Then we came back at camp, and it was there. Uh, underneath some stuff that we missed, but I said, Ben, praise God. He found it for us. He showed us where it is. Take every opportunity you can to lead your children to God. Um, show them what it looks like. We've got to model it, too. Don't think that you can just have Bible time with your kids, talk to them about God, and then live an opposite of a godly life. Let them see your mistakes. Let them see you repent. Repent to them when you need to. Repent to your wife or your husband when you need to. Uh, let them regularly see just you walking in the scriptures. So I think those would be a few things I, I would say. But remember, the Spirit's in you. Never underestimate the power of the Spirit. He is in you, and he is more than sufficient to accomplish this purpose. Uh, so trust in him. Uh, let me pray one more time, then we have one more. S nope, we don't have one more song. So uh, I'm going to pray, and you're dismissed. Have an amazing day. I want to encourage you, so just remember this, as you go out on days especially like this, and on amazing days, I hope we have many of to come, especially in the summer, these are great times. Our neighbors are coming out. Invite them for barbecues. Invite them over. Do silly little things at your house. Whatever it takes, uh, get to know them. Awesome opportunities to get to know your neighbors and to begin to share Jesus about them. Take advantage. Take, take one Sunday, two Sundays, or a weekend, or whatever it is, to make sure you're having people over at your house on days like this. Take advantage. You know when winter comes where people go, right? It's hard to find a neighbor. Uh, but these days, neighbors are out. They're all yard working, doing everything else they can. I encourage you, take advantage of these. Reach out to your neighbors or your coworkers or whoever it is God's laying on your heart. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. May we never, ever forget about the grace of God. God, help us to teach it to our children, that they would teach it to their children that they would teach it to their children. God, I pray just for us as a church that this whole idea of multiplication that you give us, not that we make up, but that you give us, 
would just be ingrained into our DNA that we would regularly be telling more and more people, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers, other people about you, that they would come to know you, who they would then come and share your gospel with other people. God, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray for our parents here. Give them wisdom. Lord, I pray for our junior church workers. Give them wisdom. And I pray, raise up an army of teachers here who would come to teach children. Maybe they're their own children or maybe they're just the children of this church. But may we rise up and disciple the the next generation. In your name, Jesus, amen. Have a blessed day.